baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth, a discussion of one of the topics making news this week. This is KCBS In-Depth. Last fall, wildfires burned across seven counties in Northern California in October, killing 44 people and burning close to 9,000 structures. Reporter Doug Sovert compiled sound of KCBS coverage of the fires. We've got fire on that side of the road, fire on both sides of the road. The devastation that I have seen, I've never seen anything like it before. This entire area looks, I hate to say, uh, like a war zone. This is a serious, critical, catastrophic event. It looks like a bomb fell on the land and it's completely incinerated. This year, from the Oregon border to San Diego, fires have already raged, with firefighters battling hot temperatures and windy conditions. Nearly 200,000 acres have burned across the state since January 1st, more than double the average by July 9th of the previous five years, according to an analysis of fire statistics by the Bay Area News Group. To discuss fires, their impacts, how to best live in our climate-changing world, and what we can expect in the future, we are joined by Keith Gillis, a professor of forest economics at the University of California, Berkeley, since 1983. He has served as dean of the College of Natural Resources at UC from 2007 to 2018, and he's the recipient of the Berkeley Academic Senate's Distinguished Teaching Award, and he is the author of two books on forest resource management and economics. Professor, thanks for joining us. Margie? In this era of big wildfires, the big question is where to build and where not to build. Oh, boy. Let's let's start with the easy ones, right? <laughs> um, where to build. Uh, where to build is the biggest question we're going to have to deal with in land use planning because some of California's development has really reflected almost an absence of land use planning. Um, we've tried to build housing sometimes uh, in the most cost-efficient way or site-by-site. Uh, -site. It ends up resulting in road networks that really don't serve the needs of public safety, especially when the housing density gets very high. Um, it works to get to a residence, but it doesn't necessarily work to allow a big uh, kind of urban fire truck to, to arrive on site expeditiously. And the transportation networks that we have don't always allow people to leave at the same time we're trying to get emergency services in. And so I'm not sure it's where to build as much as it's how to build. Um, and we need to build with a lot more forethought. There is an emerging question about where to build, which I think will be very interesting in an era of big data and uh, spatial data science, in that we're, we're looking at where wind and topography combine to make an area more at risk for 
uh, the kind of catastrophic fires that we saw in the 2017 fire season. And so that's an interesting question. And um, in part, it'll involve a lot of modeling um, where we and we have some historical evidence that we looked at the North Bay fires. Uh, I got a text on the morning of the North Bay fires from a retired uh, Cal Fire captain who got a master's degree with me at one point, and he said, Keith, it's the Hanley Fire all over again. Mm. That was about 10 a.m. after he'd gotten his family evacuated out of Santa Rosa. And so there are these recurring patterns we see. So there's some historical evidence, but we could augment that with modeling data to say, where does the combination of weather and topography and the vegetation matrix in an area perhaps create greater risk. Now, whether that becomes a zoning issue or a building standards issue or an insurance rate issue, uh, those are the kind of questions California has to deal with. What do you think we need to learn in terms of uh, emergency response? That was a big issue in Santa Rosa, getting out the word to people. Some people didn't receive the notifications and some people did. One of the great innovations in uh, evacuation was reverse 911 calls. Um, the problem is the world's moved on and um, going to landlines, uh, my daughters are both in their 30s. I don't know how long it's been since either had a landline. And so relying on the notion that everyone had a household phone and that's going to be a mechanism to reach out to them. Uh, relying on just one or another kind of emergency uh, uh, sort of media context, whether it's through television or radio, uh, the way in which people connect with the world is so diverse. Um, we're going to see, I am sure, um, some more pervasive use of new technologies that aren't necessarily opt-in. I mean, this was a, a huge problem in the North Bay in that we have some good technologies. They're a little at risk, so we have to also work on the resilience of cell phone transmissions, and that could involve some great new technology like use of drones in emergency situations to provide at least text uh, bandwidth, kind of limited coverage. But um, we're going to have to make sure that uh, safety is not sort of an opt-in phenomena. Um, in the North Bay situation in particular, it was clear that we're never going to go beyond one of the most valuable sources of emergency notification, our neighbors. Right. You know, that the number of lives that were saved by people caring for other people and going next door and banging on the door, especially of elderly residents who might not hear any kind of a phone alert, whether it was a landline or a cell phone boost. Um, that, that was really remarkable. Um, better standardization of protocols for when you use the tools we have available. I, I think that's in the offing. Um, the fire agencies and the public service agencies do a remarkable job of coordination, but it's still a very um, complex system of local, state, and federal resources who's going to manage an incident and who has the responsibility for activating whatever sort of emergency notification you're going to get. That's something I think we'll get a bit more standardized on. In this case, for the North Bay fires, I believe it was two different local agencies late at night on a Sunday, and so who, who does the authorization? There's also the issue, though, of 
it's not enough. Just notification is good. Uh, information is important too. And in the worst case scenarios, um, where you have multiple simultaneous fire starts over an area, the issue of how you get information about evacuation as opposed to just notification of an incident out. This is a big issue um, because evacuation notices that aren't to um, the right um, safety locations could create real transportation problems in corridors. And that was one of the reasons for us some hesitancy to pull the trigger on, on some of the technology they had was um, people know that uh, the history of civilian deaths in major fire incidents they tend to be in the evacuation phase. And so um, evacuating and getting stuck in an evacuation can be as dangerous as not having people out of an area. Big picture for wildfires. What role is climate change playing in all of this? And what can we do in looking at our forests to ensure that they're healthy? I mean, is thinning a part of this? Should it be? Should oh, it not be? thinning and management is absolutely a part of this. Um, at, at some point, science has to overrule uh, philosophy. Um, so, is climate change a role in this? You know, of course. I, I'm a scientist. It's hard to find a scientist that doesn't think that climate change is real and that it has a strong uh, human cost element to it. Uh, but whether it's human cost or not, uh, which is part of the political difficulty with our coming to grips with this as a society as a society it's neither here nor there we're seeing um, fire weather that is consistent with every prediction that the climate modelers are making for climate change whether or not you want to say it's climate change driven uh, what we are experiencing is what we should be preparing for uh, in a world where every credible scientist I know believes that climate change is real. Um, so, and, and I do, I, I worked on a white paper for the effect of uh, climate change on initial attack on wildland fire back uh, when AB 32 was under consideration. And so I've, I've looked at the situation. I, I trust the science of climate change. And as we roll it through sort of the firefighting uh, modeling that scientists like I do, um, it's clear resistance to control will be more difficult and we will have fire seasons that don't have defined on and off switches the way we did, you know, 50 years ago in the state. Um, we're looking at the potential for extreme weather, both extremely wet events but extremely dry events. Uh, with low relative humidity and high wind speeds. So you, 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 whenever you have extreme events on the resistance, high resistance to control issue, you're, you're going to have some problems. And, and we're going to see that under climate change. So we might as well prepare now for the California that's going to be uh, the one our grandchildren inherit. So that uh, that leads to this question: Does the state need to spend more money, probably a lot more money, to you know meet the need on an emergency response basis? How much money we need to spend is an interesting question. You can spend an infinite amount of money without achieving uh, certainty of safety. So 
the best possible response, we will still have some terrible fires in this state uh, in the same sense that no matter how much money you spend to prepare for earthquakes, we are going to have some some very bad scenarios at some point over the next century, say, uh, on earthquakes. If we have people in floodplains, we're going to have some flooding problems, regardless of how much money we spend on levees and dams and, and, and other re- wetlands restoration. So, so you can't spend your way to complete safety. Th- this is a natural hazard like several others, which define the environment and the ecosystem we live in. Uh, in fact, fire is the defining disruption element in in. The California economy. This is, we joke about it in the fire uh, science age service. You know, where we're saying, this is the most flammable real estate on earth, and the Australians say, no, we are. But, um, you know, it's 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 a problem. Do you need more resources? More resources always help. In the worst combinations of multiple fire starts, high wind speeds. Uh, high fuel loadings, low relative humidity, uh, fires moving at night when it's more difficult to uh, get intelligence on them or organize evacuation. In situations like that, if we had several hundred more fire trucks in the state, it wouldn't hurt, but it wouldn't mean we wouldn't necessarily have a catastrophic outcome. So, yes, resources matter. Um, There were implications that Maybe more uh, resources would have moved the mutual aid to some of the fires last year a little faster. I I have to say though it's remarkable that you can move the resources there already. You know the the first twelve hours of a fire, even with pre-positioning where you think the high the fire danger is high, the first twelve hours is still going to be a problem to mobilize resources from across a state this big. So. So just having more fire trucks or more helicopters is not the answer. It's a part of the answer. What can we do to prepare or to mitigate the damage then? Lots of vegetation management, especially uh, to create more defensible spaces around homes or at a landscape scale around uh, developments. So it takes a lot of money for good vegetation management. we wish in the forestry world we had a better market for biofuel energy mm. because that would give us a place to put the stuff, uh, right? And California is a great leader in solid waste management, so we, we're trying not to just create a solid waste management problem of the sort that uh, we are already experiencing post-fire with some of these uh, fires that go through a lot of infrastructure, like the North Bay fires. Um, we need to spend more money on um, retrofitting homes in some areas. Uh, whether or not we follow our convention of saying you're going to move to uh, – a better level of safety in terms of the the nature of the construction materials in your home, the roof type, or so forth, tied to renovations, or whether we say we need some money going in publicly to help people in areas get ahead of the curve and not wait for that, say, wood shingle roof to go to its end of its useful life, but let's replace it now so that it doesn't create a big ember load when it goes up in a fire, endangering the homes downstream. So so there's money at the homeowner level. There's money um, 
in vegetation management. There's perhaps subsidies to the biomass energy uh, sector um, so that you can afford to dispose of the material. Um, so a fair amount of money, but not we're talking just tens of millions to actually make sure people understand the natural hazards they're living with. Uh, this is part of being in California. And so community level education, uh, preparedness plans for evacuation, for notification of neighbors, that sort of thing. It takes some money, but that's not the big money. <laughs> You are listening to In-Depth on KCBS. I'm Jeffrey Schaub, along with Margie Schaefer. Our guest is UC Professor of Forest Economics at UC Berkeley, Keith Gillis. Now, you're an expert on forest economics, as your bio says, but what does that entail, and how does it apply to major fire risks in the state? Oh, um, forest economics, in my case, just means I became allergic to tree pollen after fender finishing all the coursework <laughs> to get a Ph.D. in forest genetics, and I decided I wasn't allergic to math. So I got a double PhD in forestry and agricultural economics and started looking at the, the managerial and economic dimensions of forestry as opposed to the biological. Um, in, in the case of, of my skill set, partly the training I had in statistics as an economist, I started out by uh, stumbling into, well, simulating firefighting agencies is interesting. I, I like building simulation models. Uh, so I started out applying my skill set as an economist and kind of operations research person to uh, simulating the initial attack on fires uh, to say, well, where should you put a new fire truck? If you lost a fire truck, which one would you take away? Uh, how aggressively should you deploy your fire trucks, especially considering the uh, stochastic or random behavior of fire events? Um, I moved from that into this urban wildland fire issue completely by accident. Uh, Cal Fire had collected some data. They wanted me to look at it. And I said, well, actually, you didn't collect it right. You only collected data on homes that burned down. I need data on the homes that didn't burn down next to them to say something statistically valid about uh, what kind of buildings uh, are more fire resistant. Now, what's and, some uh, of the economic fallout of these wildland fires? Oh, well... The economic fallout of it, uh, well, first, there's just the drain on the public treasury. So um, firefighting expenditures have been going up and up and up, both in the, the pre-fire kind of expenditures and the suppression expenditures. And the theory, the economic theory behind fire, fire management says there's sort of an inverse relationship between the money you spend before the fires and preparation and vegetation management and, and building up your your pre-positioning of resources and the money you'll spend suppressing later, right? So the better prepared you are, the less you spend and the less damage there is. Um, and trying to find an optimum there, it's hard to say there actually there actually is one. Uh, so, but the public budget part, um, the insurance loss, um, and you know these losses are widely shared. They tend to not be regional, but in a place like California, there could be not just the increase in premiums, but you, you don't want to get to a situation where the insurance industry doesn't feel it's an assignable risk and feels this isn't something I, I'm comfortable insuring because I don't understand my exposure, right? We we briefly got into a situation like that a bit with, with earthquakes after Loma Prieta in the state where homeowners had difficulty getting insurance. Um, 
I think the most troubling is the impact on households uh, in rural areas. I, I, I sympathize deeply with, you know, families like my own that have good insurance on their homes uh, and much of their loss in an insurance senses. It's, it's covered. It's an insurable loss uh, other than the memories of the house and the disruption to the family. But um, a lot of the losses, I think, particularly in fires like we saw in Lake County, they're their losses to an extremely vulnerable part of the population, and they're uninsured. And so the loss in sort of the reduction in net household wealth is, is pretty alarming uh, to a fire incident that goes through an area like that where most of the losses are uninsured. And then there's sort of spillover effects. If you have uh, a California with this absurdly tight housing market and you have a big loss of housing stock in a place like Santa Rosa, um, where people are then in competition uh, for temporary housing, for you know rental housing, um, the impact on the kind of long-term rental population, as opposed to the folks who have resources from insurance settlements, says you're you're again pushing a lot of economic damage down onto sort of the more vulnerable households in an area, and you know we have a lot of California with kind of there is no vacancy in, in the rebuild, housing stock. In rebuilding, what materials do you suggest people should be using? And do you see that happening, for example, up in Santa Rosa with these rebuildings? Yeah, well, you know, after some of the fires in the past and the, the study that got me into studying this where I looked at the Painted Cave fire in Santa, Santa Barbara where we had something like uh, 85 to 90 percent survival of homes that did not have a wood roof and had actually done the prescribed vegetation clearance, right? So when you're rebuilding, you know, we, we actually, uh, in the Bates bill, we, we actually had some movement in the state that says building codes need to reflect what is safe as opposed to simply what is our architectural tradition. So I love Maybach. Maybach design is not necessarily the best thing to put in a high fire danger zone. So wood roofs are, are just out. Um, it turns out the the siding material doesn't matter a lot. Hmm. Uh, but things like the nature of the vents, the soffit vents, that actually does matter. Um, uh, sometimes it's just maintenance issues, not the construction, uh, but valleys where you would accumulate needles and litter on the roof, uh, that's a problem. Um, tile roofs, if you don't stop up the ends so that you prevent ember intrusion, you know, when the winds are blowing embers nearly horizontally, if they're going under uh, kind of a Spanish-style roof, roof and, and yeah. igniting the, the subroofing. <laughs> you know, so, so there's a bunch of little things like that. And we're, we're getting a lot better than California, but always most of your housing stock is pre-existing housing stock anywhere. So you'll still have a problem even if you do all new construction so to getting, a good standard. Yeah, getting back to you know Marty's first question, you, you had mentioned the other day we were talking that uh, you know we have such a demand for housing in California, where are you going to put it? And I said, you know, we've got this tremendous urban wildland interface problem building up against these slopes and, and uh, forested areas. How can we do that anymore? We, it seems to me we just can't be anywhere ne near these kinds of open spaces. Well, it depends what you manage the space to look like. Um, you know, one of the things I point out frequently to visitors to the Berkeley campus is the forest up on the hillsides above the campus. 
that's not a natural forest. That's a forest we constructed mostly with Monterey pines from, you know, a small range farther south here and eucalyptus from Australia. The natural vegetation would have been more like an oak savanna with some bay trees and some redwoods where there was good soil moisture and a draw. But it would be a very open landscape. So um, we, by our love of trees, I'm a forester. I love trees. <laughs> um, I frequently think I like them better than I like people. Um, but we have to not move the landscape in a way that visually resonates with us and um, creates a safety issue. So, so you, you, you can build in these areas, but a lot of it's maintenance. Fires can be very destructive, but there's also a purpose to them. They can be rejuvenating. Oh, absolutely. And in fact, one of our biggest problems in California right now is that we excluded fire in a system where fire is very natural. But by excluding it, we got to a point where simply reintroducing it is very dangerous and risky uh, because the fuel loading is not natural. So you reintroduce fire into an area that has too much fuel. You don't have an ecologically beneficial fire. You have a fire which has more downside than upside sometimes from an environmental point of view. So you can't do prescribed burns? Oh, you can do them, but you have to do them very carefully. And for prescribed burns to be a normal management tool, we need lighter fuel loadings to start with. You know, we need uh, fewer trees per acre throughout most of the Sierra. That said, we still will always have the Clean Air Act as an issue with prescribed burning. You can't take a deliberate action as a government agency that worsens the air quality in an area where you're already in non-attainment on whatever the particulate standard is. So, um, in some cases, we need to marry mechanical fuel treatments with prescribed fire in a way that we respect the public health implications of particulates in the air. So, it's, it's a little more complex than just lighting fires. And the closer you get to people, the more controversial prescribed burning gets. You said your buddy called you when the fire broke out. He sent me a text. Yeah, yeah he sent you a text. Okay. Is he going to be sending you a text in 10 years if that's rebuilt? Uh, he actually gave me a tour of the, the Tubbs fire uh, the other day. Um, so I think he won't send me a text. He'll give me a, a cell phone call the next the But next you think that could burn again? I think every area in California can burn. I think some areas will burn uh, based just on the historical record we know with greater frequency. And I think we can change the frequency with how we manage it. We have new data that shows, you know, very high stocking unmanaged uh, stands in the Sierra burn with maybe twice the rate of managed forests. So it's not all inevitable. You you don't have these catastrophic uh, 100,000 acre fires where you destroy many homes. They're, they're not necessarily natural and they're not necessarily inevitable. Um we will have losses, but we can do a lot to manage them by how we build, where we live, and, and how we manage the landscape we're in. Are you worried about the future relative to this? I worry about many dimensions of climate change. And California moving from kind of a uh, on-the-margin system 
with respect to the water. You know, will Northern California start looking like the Southern Sierra, where the water is always a little on the limiting side for the forest there? And so, could we see massive uh, type conversions under climate change? I'd like to think not, but it's it's possible. One takeaway for listeners who want to be prepared for these type of wildfires, what would you say? Be alert to the weather and have a go bag. Uh, Know it should be in a go bag. And when you get a notice to move, don't try and second guess the, the fire service that's telling you it's time to go. Well, I'm afraid we're out of time, but thank you so much, Professor Gillis, for being with us. I'm Jeffrey Schaub. I'm Margie Schaefer. Thanks for joining us on KCBS In-Depth. You've just heard KCBS In-Depth, a news interview program for All News 740 and FM 106.9 KCBS. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did.